competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hello, everyone. Welcome to an episode of the Art of War podcast here. My name is Paul Murphy. I'm joined by Nick Notavati. Hey, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Today, we're also welcoming Matt Shookman. Matt, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Hey, Nick. How are you guys doing? We're great. I'm great. You're great. Everyone's great. This is a great day. This is part one of a two-part episode, and we're going to be talking about Eldari, and not just, like, I know you may have heard us talk about this before, but this is a radically different list, and Matt, you almost took it all the way at the Nova Open, one of the largest tournaments in the land, and with a pretty unconventional list. Well, let me give some backstory on that, Matt. You said, we were talking at the event, you were like, you have never made it past the semifinals of Nova, you said, and this is like 10 years of going to Nova. You you want to tell that story a little bit? That that is correct. So I've been to... All but the first two Novas. So the first one, that like weird barbecue thing that everyone talks about, and the second one, which was at the uh, Dulles Expo Center, and then then they started the Hyatt, and I've been at every one of those. And I have made the top cut all but twice. So of the, I guess that, I think that's not, it's either eight or nine Novas. So I've made the top cut probably seven times, and I've made it to the semifinals twice. And both of those times before this past weekend, I uh, very very quickly lost in the semifinals. Usually right after a, a close game with Andrew Gagno, usually I beat him and then immediately lose afterward. So coincidentally, this actually held that same tradition of I beat I, Andrew and then he immediately far. lost again. <laughs> Well, but it was still a he broke that uh, one ceiling and then went all the way to the finals. And with Eldar, especially an unconventional Eldar list, I will say, people know about Ulthway as like a faction and they think, you know, it does stuff. But your list is all over the place as far as like convention goes. And I really want to, I'm excited to unpack it. Yeah, hard-fought victories, as we, as we know we've seen, and we're going to talk about some of those along the way. But would you mind kind of listing out your your list and, and how you kind of arranged it with the detachments? Yeah, absolutely. Fortunately, I have it open in front of me, so it's easy to talk about. Um, so because I wanted to play Ulthway, right, when Nephilim came out, it kind of became, oh, well, you, you have some limited choices here with managing your command points because you don't want to start at zero. Really, with a craft world list in general, you always want to have two or more because you want to be able to phantasm so i am split up into two patrols first patrol is obviously free because it has my warlord in it and the second patrol i pay the two command points for and then i'm only buying one warlord trait and one relic so i'm able to start with that magic two cp meaning i can phantasm if i have to i can throw one or two units in the webway if i well one unit in the webway and i could cloud strike but i don't need to because i have falcons which we'll talk about in a minute so really it just it gives you a lot of flexibility right out the gate to either redeploy if you really think you're going to need to or webway something usually a ranger squad um so the the gist of the list as i said two patrols the first patrol eldred a farseer on a jet bike um so major psychic support there just to get all of those really really amazing eldari buffs um two warlocks both of them solo so they're characters because again since we're going to cover that i have those falcons i have a lot of like easy way to protect characters um so the two solos make a lot more sense than trying to do like a conclave so one with quicken one with protect again making sure i have access to all of the possible utility buffs that are available to eldari quicken to move twice restrain to stop an action from happening or against the majority of armies stop them from really being able to move very far um protect and jinx to be able to either buff my own save if you actually watch generally i almost always just use jinx it's very rare that i protect anything because it just it's a marginal value gain on eldar units which are kind of made of paper um then the rest of that 
remaining patrol is there's a ranger squad because you have to have troop choice and rangers are a really great troop choice um two units of howling banshees both of them upgraded so the exarchs have mirror swords 10 attacks one of them has the two damage the other one has the nerve shredding shriek thing which does like a mortal when you charge on a two plus so it's not huge but it's really just to make it so she has 10 attacks um a solo viper who may not get to maintain his presence in my list because he was a sad underperformer across no, the entire event. No, I love the solo Viper. You can't get rid of the solo Viper. We'll, we'll talk about that yeah. in, in episode two. That's this is part heart. one of a two-part episode. Okay. Yeah, so we'll talk about no. the changes. Sorry about that. Then uh, then there's a there's one of the one of the three Falcons is in that first patrol. Then you get to the second patrol, which is our, our best friend, the Avatar of Kane, the, the absolute MVP of the entire event. He just <laughs> does amazing work when played really well. And even if he can't do work, He's really, really good at sitting on an objective behind a wall and not dying, which is really important to sit on an objective and not die. Um, our, our main man, Baroth, you know, if you're playing Graph Worlds and you don't have a Baroth, you're, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's almost Dude, an auto-include for all the utility that he brings. He has to be. It's He's just, we, we can talk about him. I mean, I'm sure you guys have talked about him countless times with the way Nick is running before and stuff. So he's just amazing. Um, two five-man Dire Avenger squads, they typically just ride it up in one of those Falcon one or, or usually one each in one of the Falcons. They're just, again, just great. Lots of shots. Um, able to just, again, stand an objective scoring points is what this is all about. Um, another Ranger squad. Cause you again, have to have one in the patrol. Otherwise your patrol is illegal. You don't want to have an illegal list. I actually had an illegal list at Innova once and, uh, they will rewrite your list to make it legal and usually penalize you in some way. I, I, it was a very sad time for me when I had an illegal list the one time I ended up dropping because it, it wasn't worth continuing to play. Um, two five-man hawk squads, because swooping hawks are amazing, and then, of course, the other two falcons. You bring up that part about a legal list is that, and that, that can happen to the best of us. Like you it, really, especially with the complexity of how uh, army lists are created. Now you really want to make sure you check everything before you submit your list and then the night before, and then heck, probably even the morning of. Yeah. The, the last thing you want to do is get that text from a friend, you know, the, you know, two rounds into the event. Hey, by the way, I figured out that your detachment wasn't built right or a battle scribe, you know, use battle scribe or something. And the, the points hadn't been updated quite yet or any one of those things. My, I think mine was, I had a detachment construction problem where I had the right number of units. This was early eighth. I had the right amount of elites, but I listed it as a fast attack detachment. And I, I had enough fast attack choices and I had enough elites to make it all work, but it, it was not written correctly. So after chatting with them at the time, I was like, well, I'll, I'll just drop. <laughs> that's a nice cautionary tale. Can we talk about the Falcons? Yeah, yep. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen play, you know, where they've had one or two. You've gone the full three here. <laughs> yep. I really, I started with two when I was doing some testing right after the book came out. And I was like, these things are just, just great. What if I ran three? And <laughs> it just kind of became this thing. I was like, well, you know, now I just have to, once you start using three, you really can't go back because it's just all of that flexibility. I tried running one of them as a wave serpent. Um, my real problem with that was just by the time you put anti-tank guns, so if you want like twin bright lances on a wave serpent, it just costs more. And the durability is really not that huge. I mean, the being transhuman on a wave serpent is kind of cool. But by the time you account for the extra points, if the goal is to have something that's like kind of durable and easy-ish to hide, one, the Falcon is a little smaller without those little spiky fin bits on the front. And then two, it ends up with 
similar amount of firepower, if realistically more, because you also get a scatter laser and your pulse laser has two shots. You lose one point of AP, but you get the extra strength, which there's a lot of things that are toughness eight. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times six pulse laser shots has like nearly killed an Imperial Knight because, you know, your strength nine, so you wound on threes. <laughs> it really, it, re- it can really just add up damage wise. Um, it means lots of things like when I play against Tyranids, um, at least I don't ever run into, oh, suddenly I'm wounding on fives. Um, I think there's a warlord trait that hive tyrants might be able to take that makes them like minus one to wound. Um, so stuff like this really helps because you know even though typically Leviathan and they're transhuman, you still end up you're still at least wounding them on fours. And again, the majority of things you wound on threes. So it's what is the damage profile on the pulse laser? It is three plus D three, so it's the same damage profile as a bright lance. So a lot of times you'll see people run a wave serpent with twin bright lances on it. So again, you have pretty much the same firepower, but it's generally about twenty points cheaper. Can still hold five guys. AP three. Yeah, the the lance is the four, right? But again, the majority of the time you're also shooting at something that you're jinxing, and jinx is one of the few powers that works on non-core things because jinx just applies for everyone who shoots at them, which is nice. Versus if you, you know, for instance, like a lot of very few of the units actually in the Elder Book that are really heavy support choices are core. So a lot of times you can cast Doom, which was the old staple concept of Elder of Doom something, and then shoot all your guns at it and hope it dies. Now it's you Doom it and you shoot all your Aspect Warriors at it and hope it dies. But all of your non-core things like Falcons, Wave Serpents, those kinds of guys, they're not getting any benefit from that. So again, it kind of leads, it led me down that path of why not just use Falcons, which can deep strike turn one, which minimizes my footprint on the battlefield. Um, I, I, I think that was actually seen on all three of the stream gains games to great effect where my entire army was completely hidden in one building definitely that your army can shrink itself in the smallest little footprint being that so much of it can start in reserve in these falcons and especially on gw terrain you know that environment going in it's very easy to uh kind of tailor your list for that i want to talk about that in a second but before we get to that you mentioned your falcons give you a whole level of flexibility i know with cloud strike or whatever the rule is called that lets them to deep strike turn one two or three with units inside there's a myriad of potential plays what were the ones that you actually found yourself doing with them often in what situations so honestly i use every option <laughs> so my game one was against a really nice black templar player um he was woefully as most space marines are unprepared for the level of just like pressure that these falcons will provide when they just like land somewhere across the battlefield so it like that was a game where all i deep struck all three of them they all came in turn one um i ended up i ghost walked one of the banshees as they dropped out so then i was able to ghost walk gives you plus two to a charge so ghost walk plus fate dice at a banshee squad deep strike in and immediately make a charge into some units um all three of the falcons the other two dropped their dire avengers and i just obliterated a flank with just like uh, just all of that pressure and then you know his, how, his rebuttal how far he away killed, are you coming with these falcons are these like 36 inches away are these like as far away as well out the banshee charge in that in that game i landed all three falcons literally not thir- away uh, 13 inches <laughs> off of his line because i wanted the dire avengers to shoot and not get hit by an auspex scan and then the banshees were nine inches away but there was a wall between us that way he wouldn't be able to auspex scan and kill them and the, that whole plan was just just bum rush him right there and then he you know he finished off the banshees in return and then the avatar just kind of wandered forward with because i had quickened him up so avatar walked up probably like 14 inches with an advance and then i quickened him so he walked up again so then immediately turn two after he killed the banshees there's an avatar right there and at that point the that game was over this is not how i envisioned your list playing at all all the games <laughs> i watched you play were these passive sit back and score your points things you watched me play against tau I, i'm 
I'm just blown away by the aggression you can put on, especially after watching you play a couple of games. It's really cool. I One of the questions I love to ask in these episodes, especially in the beginning, is what is this list strategy? But it sounds to me like your strategy is whatever you want it to be in the moment. How do you even go about playing this army? Um I've played a lot of games with it. Um, I, I don't play as much as I used to. You know, I, I got two small kids, so it's a little time-consuming with them. But I've really only played this list since the Codex came out. Um, I just So it's, I don't know. One of those faction mastery situations. We talked about that during our commentary. Yeah, familiarity means a lot. I mean, knowing that those stratagems are are in your like reserve if, if you need them, and knowing, being familiar with each of what they are goes a long way. Yeah, no, it, it's been helpful. So it, it means I'm able to make on-the-fly decisions with, you know, right at the beginning of the game, as soon as I get a matchup. So, you know, you have that, like, 10 minutes where you can kind of, like, quickly look over someone's list, and I can usually formulate a game plan. And I there, there's kind of the two approaches. There's approach one of, okay, do I think I need to just go full-on aggressive and try to just destroy someone or do i need to just go okay well if i don't need to do that maybe i can just outscore them and it's usually a lot of like quick math around like what secondaries do i think they'll take what do i think their realistic potential max score is and so like if you know the two tau games that you're really highlighting nick that or i think you guys really got to watch i have a lot of familiarity with the tau matchup so i was able to guesstimate within i got two out of three of their secondaries right on both of them before the games even started knowing what they would take and that means i knew what their math was on what they could realistically score and and tower generally playing um Kion, Kion, however you say that, the the option where they their buffs are in the last three turns. And generally when Tau players take that, they go very passive. And a lot of times they're thinking that they're just going to be passive for one or two turns and they're just going to try to blow you away, but they can't cross the battlefield that quickly. So what you saw was a lot of me going, okay, well, I know what the math is. And I know that as long as I score, you know, this secondary here, I get, you know, at least a 12 on this, a 10 on this, and a nine on this other one. I know I can keep their secondaries down to certain levels as well. And so in both of those games with um, Andrew and with Brenton, I actually wrote down, I was two points off on the score with Andrew. He got two more points than I thought he would. And I was exactly right on the score with Brenton on the bottom of turn one for both of them. I wrote down what I thought our scores were going to be. And it was exactly what I expected. That's amazing. Doing that points projection is yeah. like just to, so to kind of keep you on pace. Exactly. That's kind of your roadmap to figuring out who's winning, who's losing, and how much aggression or tempo you need to be putting into the game. We teach this kind of stuff in the room. Really good to see you put it into such amazing effect, Matt. Like to get it on the nose is something I don't know if I've ever seen anyone do. Like to the point. <laughs> Um, at turn one, anyway, that's that's really far out. It's it's only something I'm really able to do with Tau because again, I Andrew and I are sparring partners. We play you know once or twice a month, and for us, that's a lot. Andrew last week, <laughs> yeah, we we play a lot. So so um, okay, so basically, if I'm to understand how you approach the game, it's to get to the table, use your immense knowledge and understanding of your own faction to quickly figure out which approach you should take between aggressive or defensive, usually with respect to a points projection that will tell you, can this army just sit on its butt and score like more points than me? Or is it going to have to be the, or am I going to go have to kill it? And is there, is that more or less the idea or is there more that goes into that? That's pretty much the idea. Um, the gist of the deployment is actually the same regardless of which approach I take, because unless I see some really weird reason to need to, there's always two Falcons in Cloud Strike. There's always one Falcon on the table with Howling Banshees in it. And then there's always just like a pile of characters kind of crammed between a Falcon and an Avatar to avoid anyone like, you know, flying a plane behind me and trying to snipe out my characters. That was going to be my, one of my questions about how often you did Cloud Strike the Falcons. It's like, it just seems like it's, they go to for at least two thirds of them. Uh, two of them are always in Cloud Strike. I, I actually can't recall the last time I deployed all, more than one Falcon. <laughs> 
what is what is the situation where you why do you even deploy the one falcon is it just a character protect so one it's for character protection two it's because the banshees assuming you have a fate dice for an advance they have a 17 inch movement threat range out of that falcon so generally there's there's almost always space to hide one falcon i actually haven't seen a table even if you go to like another event with player place terrain you can always arrange some sort of place where one Falcon can sit and be concealed. And in that case, it's cool. Well, anything that comes within about 25 inches of this Falcon inside of this piece of terrain is going to get hit by five Howling Banshees. And really, no one wants to get hit Seven, by five Howling Banshees. 17 inches is, I mean, that really is from your deployment zone to a reasonable, like a basically barely even a charge. Yep. And then if you account for a, a six on a fate dice charge, that's where you get to that, you know, about 25 inches of pretty reliable threat. Um, generally, it's more than that, especially if you have these ruins that have the two inch engagement range. It just becomes you can I can be in my deployment zone and you can be in yours. And then if I really want to on turn one, those five banshees are going to be in your deployment zone, probably killing something. So it's almost like because you deploy this banshee falcon thing, it protects your characters and lets you kind of null deploy where your deployment fits behind a wall. And the mm -hmm. avatar, he's pretty easy to hide himself. And even if he's not, yep. he's very tough. And your opponent you're vulnerable to being blitzed, I'd assume, because so much of your stuff is in reserve and there's not much deployed. But the Banshees and the Serp and the Falcon kind of create this enormous threat projection that no one really wants to get up at you. Exactly. And the kinds of armies that will just come at you, you know, you're, you're thinking about like, you know, like an, probably like an Emperor's Children style list of just like hyper aggressive or like some kind of Black Legion list with Abaddon. Um, a lot of Tyranids tried to do it. Actually, three of my four Tyranid opponents tried to do the kind of blitz you're talking about. And what happened to the three who tried that is their big bugs got up to me and then were killed by the amount of aggressive firepower and combat power that this army really does actually deceptively put out. And you've got the two units of Banshees, and again, they can easily appear, because if one of them is in a Waves or, or in one of the Falcons, for instance, it's going to arrive right there nine inches off in my own deployment zone, which is not a terrible place. The one unit in the Falcon on the table, um, you know, there's four Smites that can come out from between the two Warlocks and the two Farseers. There's a lot of debuffs that can go on things. Um, the Avatar, of course, if you come into my deployment zone, generally he's just going to walk up and kill something, sometimes two somethings, if he wants to split his attacks, and I think there's a good target for it. So we did see some, like in the Necron game, you know, in the in the finals there, where the the avatar just didn't have good profiles to attack into. Like what was presented yeah. as the as the thing did not seem the best profiles. What are some of the things that he's really good to taking out? Um, so I think it was my round six. I played against uh, Christopher Goslin. He was running two Turvagons with like piles of Termagons. It's actually a really complicated list to play against because a lot of obsec power can't shoot the Turvagons because they get character protection from the Termagons. And the Avatar is a phenomenal choice against things like Turvagons, where they don't have an invulnerable save. So he walks up with his AP5 and says, well, um, every wound I make is just going straight through, and he does D6 plus 2 damage. So he in that game, he actually walked up and just smacked a Turvagon, and then that Turvagon got put back on the tray. Um, oh, real good. Yeah. So lo now, lots of things like that. Things that don't have invulns are always ideal. Things that have five up invulns are okay. Um, you generally don't want to smack him into things with four ups. That that feels kind of wishy washy. Um, unless of course it's a smaller character where you only need like one attack to get through and you'll just kill them. I mean, it's not it's not hindsight for you, but it's hindsight for us. It's like we we kind of well we haven't seen a lot of avatars out there. Yeah. You know, so very rare. Yeah. You know, what <laughs> led you to putting that character in your list in the first place? Honestly, it started as a rule of cool thing. <laughs> um, sure. I, I love like, when that these, happens. That's okay. I love yeah, when these, you these take rules a rule of cool awesome. thing and you just like make it work actually. That's really cool. 
then it just became, you know, he's a receptacle for all these buffs. You can cast Fortune on him, you can cast Quicken on him, you can cast Guide on him, you can cast Will of Osirin on him. So suddenly you can have this, you know, monster who takes half damage, two up armor, four up invuln, five up feel no pain, rerolls hits, um, obsec, you know, from the Will of Osirin buff tacked on the end, and then you can ghost walk him even, so he can get plus two to his charge. So you just have all these great buffs that work really well, and he's a great use of fate dice because you know you get these like random saves you know you roll a six on your fate dice and you go cool i've got a save it's like well you're not going to waste that on like a swooping hawk but you're probably dire avenger exactly they're great for falcons because falcons get a six up invulnerable save in Oathway, um and they're great on the avatar for oh well this really big nasty damage attack just came in well i'm just gonna pluck one of these fate dice and use that i think i actually in the game against jack he shot one of his uh silent king whatever the the men- the men- the, yes, that thing. He shot one of those guns at, I think, at my avatar, and I'm pretty sure he and I both just went, well, we're just going to use that fate dice right there. <laughs> yep. So uh, that's actually, this leads me really nicely into one of my questions. I often think the avatar belongs in Ultway because he's such a great recipient for psychic powers, and Ultway gets their psychic powers off very well, and... You know, fate dice, as you just mentioned, are go a long way in Ultway, and he likes those. Is did Avatar being the rule of cool kind of how your list started lead you to Ultway, and that's how we got here, or <laughs> did you want Ultway for some other reasons? Why Ultway of all things? So I wish I could say yes that 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 it was a pure rule of cool thing. It was actually I started with I actually had two other Phoenix Lords <laughs> in my list originally. I was so um, I think, yeah, I had Carandrus and I had Jane Zar in here. So I had I had all three of them, and I had like a weird. Um, I don't remember what my detachments were because this was before Nephilim, but I was running the three Phoenix Lords and the two Farseers, so I had five HQs, and I was okay, happy with it, but then I started getting a little frustrated that Jane Zar just really wasn't... Her, her damage profiles just aren't really very useful a lot of the times. Um, Karandras is amazing. If I wasn't going to run the Avatar, I would definitely run him. Um, or if I could ever be convinced to like drop one of these Falcons, which will probably not happen, I would consider trying to run him, but then I run into HQ problems, so that's not really a thing. But so I was running the three, and I was liking having the extra fate dice for Ulthway. So you get the you get the bonus fate dice from having Eldritch Warlord trait, and then I used to have, I think Nick, you would run it before too. There's a warlock. I would put a relic on the warlock, which would allow you to roll an extra dice as well. So I could roll seven and keep five. Um, I found after a bunch of games that really the seventh roll almost never matters, but keeping the fifth is really important from Eldrad's warlord trait. So that that was the reason for Ulthway. And then it just kind of became a, well, now that I added the avatar and it's like, oh, well, what do you know? <laughs> I have all these buffs and they now have a place to go. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because Eldar don't have durable units besides like Wraith Guard, Wraith Lords, the avatar. That's pretty much all you got. So um, your avatar is a great recipient for Wheel of Azurian or and Fortune and all those things. That, and usually, like like you said, five Dire Avengers, they're going to die anyway. I think you guys saw five Dire Avengers die multiple times <laughs> in the three games I had streamed. Quite a bit. So I, it looks, leads me to, to your list, though, because a while back, I play Eldar 2, which I think I really like your style, to be fair. I like I, You're kind of <laughs> making me want to try your list like straight out of the gate. Do but it. I will. I will on these streams one of these days. So what led me to Hail of Doom when I was, you know, rocking up with that stuff was Tyranid having so much durability in the form of Leviathan, the mortal wound output, I figured the only way through it is just maximum damage. And to me, that was Hail of Doom. And you've been playing all the way the entire way through. So do you find yourself having a damage problem? It's not even like you're taking large units to totally buff up, like two units of five Hawks, two units of five Avengers, five Banshees. 
you have so many small units, and you know I know how an elder that can add up, but you have no real power in your army. Or, or am I missing it? You're you're not missing it. it. It really is. It's that multiplicative effect of just like I'll dogpile things on top of units. Um, I use restrain a lot. So restrain is that warlock power to have a movement characteristic and make it so things can't take actions. So a lot of times, Nids, Tyranids is a great example where that's actually hugely powerful. Um, so a lot of Tyranid players, Leviathan, they usually run one big unit of warriors, usually one to three small units of warriors. They usually have a flying hive tower with the Reaper Robotrex thing. Um, and then often what you see is one or two of, I think they're Harpies, the Flyers, and then usually some combination of a couple big bugs goes along with that. And that that's about a Tyranid army right now. Um, now, when you were when you ran Hale, I know at the the last GT you went to, that was before Tyranids got a uh, healthy, a healthy nerf. increase. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I was trying nice to look for the best way to say that. They, yeah, they, they got they, they got kicked down a peg. So it was a little harder before they took that that nerf. But the way they are right now, what I actually did twice in two of my games is I just kept restraining the big warrior unit. So the big warrior unit never got to be part of the game. They were just stuck standing somewhere, not doing anything because they couldn't perform actions. And what that allowed me to do was ignore that unit, which is actually one of the things that you would point out is very hard for me to kill. Um, they're very durable. They're fully transhuman. So I'm wounding them on generally fives a lot of the time. So I just ignore units like that. And I would do things like I'll you know shoot my pulse lasers a bunch of times at things like hive tyrants. I can usually bring those down over one or two turns. And then it becomes a scoring game of if you watched, my secondary choices are just better than basically everyone but Necrons. So it means as long as I do a little bit of primary disruption against people, I can often just score more points, and then That's I don't really claim. care what they score. Hmm? That's a bold claim. I I think the coming uh, in second. Only Necrons in the in the. I mean, that's actually what happened in the tournament. But also saying, you know, because we know Necrons could routinely put up, you know, hundreds. Ne- Necrons are the one that is kind of a problem. Um, I I have some mental solutions for it. That that game was not truly unwinnable. It became a bit of a problem based on the way a couple of those first dice rolls went. Um, it would have been oh, really yeah, nice for course. me to be yeah, the attacker. Yeah. <laughs> what trying is I, I know because you know it's not the first time you face Necrons, and, and we'll, yep. we'll get to that that discussion also. <laughs> but I guess it is a good time to talk about your path to victory. Like what what is you know what armies did you play over the course of the weekend? Uh, honestly, I played I think a smattering of what everyone would say are the the problems <laughs> for Craft Worlds. I I played against three Tyranids, three Tau, Thousand Suns, and a Black Templar list that was it was my first opponent, and he actually had every piece of anti-psyker tech that exists in the Black Templar book was in his yeah, army. Like, you're going to get off none of your points. I guess, what do you do in that situation to when you, you come up against, like, one of your one of your go-to secondaries, and I guess let's, let's jump to that uh, now also, is, you know, likely psyche-based. You have to get up there, you have to get a couple of powers off, including the, you know, the warp ritual or interrogation or whatever, and then, and then jump away so you're not out there about to get your, you know, your throat squeezed by... <laughs> Some space marines. So against him, I ended up. I did engage on all fronts. Wrath of Cain and scout the enemy. Um, Wrath of Cain just gives me rewards for killing their models. Which space marines are actually they're weird. A lot of times you can actually kill a lot of space marines. Um, they most of the play most of the people playing them usually have like somewhere between like ten and fifteen units, and a majority of the units are 
like no more than six models, usually five. So it means like units like my Howling Banshees can usually be relied upon to mostly kill one of these units. So if I can like damage it a little bit before a Banshee squad arrives, you know, with like a Swooping Hawk squad or something, I can often count on the Banshees to kill three or four models, which if that ends up killing the unit, that gives me a point for close combat for Wrath of Cain. And then if like Baroth and a Dire Ranger squad and the Swooping Hawks together can shoot someone to death, I can get the other point, which then awards me the two bonus points which gets me to a four-point turn for that. So doing that two or three turns gets you somewhere around like an 11, and that results in usually you're okay on that secondary. It's not as good as if I had been able to do like a warp ritual or a psychic interrogation, Mm -hmm. but I'm probably only losing out on one or two secondary points. And my margins are thin, but they're usually not that thin um, scoring-wise. Were you able to do you go into that making sure that you get every primary point every turn? Um, Even then, no. I, I usually sit there trying to figure out what turns do I need to block my opponent's primary? Which is a lot of dependency on, did I go first or did I go second? Um, generally, when I go first, my goal is making sure my opponent scores as little as possible. So I'll I'll do a lot of, and you saw this in both of the Tau games, a lot of disrupting their point scoring and making it so they're taking zeros or fours early and I'm getting like fours or eights to try to just create that you know perfectly mathed out differential there where I know they're going to get 12 points at the end of the game if they're going second. That, that's just... If, if you're playing 40k and you're not assuming that the person going second is getting a 12 on their last turn, I think you're making a poor assumption going into your game unless your game plan was to table them. Which, and yeah. you're saying that? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but because you know they they get all the perfect information and there's nothing you can do to disrupt them from getting on things or knowing what units of yours they have to kill. It's like they, the, it's almost a formulaic equation at that point. Exactly. And so both of my Tau games, I went second in both of them. And or I'm sorry, I, I think I actually went first against Andrew, but I went second against Brenton. And it's that whole concept of like, try to make it so that way, the scores I can block, I block. And then actually in both of those, I accounted that they would just max their primaries and they did. But making it so their primary happens later in the game generally keeps them on a back foot and makes them generally makes an opponent make a mistake with regard to their secondaries. Like maybe they don't go for aerospace early or, you know, the Black Templar player, he took oaths. So he started getting a little panicky because his primary was knocked down early. So then he threw too much in the middle, which actually allowed me to then collapse on his units in the middle and finish him off. With an avatar. Exactly. With an avatar. Style points. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. No, I can can believe that. That, That's cool to, to look at it that way. And, you know, I like your mentality there about disruption of your opponent's score as as opposed to because you can assume that both players are going to be trying to score the max points of course every turn and if you can project that it's then when do you make a move to get in the way of that without costing yourself something is it like a dial that you turn up like you you turn up the aggression the more you have to make up for the scoreboard deficit or do you just you only can be this aggressive for so long because your army is made of this like collaboration of units collaboration of paper is what you really mean it's <laughs> what i wanted to say but i was trying to be nice about it you can say it most of these things are made of paper <laughs> um, that's being so generous <laughs> it really just depends on what i think i can do um so against the black templar player I, I play against a lot of space marines locally so i i'm pretty comfortable in that match um i think craft worlds have a massive edge against basically everyone in power armor except thousand suns which they don't really count because when i say power armor i generally mean imperial we'll get deep into the matchups as well in the part too so don't you know have to go too detailed here okay so yeah the the aggression my goal is actually really to never have to be super aggressive i prefer not to just like blindly throw away my models for no reason um 
So it, it really, it all comes down to like, I, I do that math and I look at it and I look at the secondaries I have to take. You know, if I have to take Wrath of Cain, like if that's where I'm stuck with taking a secondary that is all about killing my opponent, then the aggression has to be dialed up because generally my models will disappear as the game goes on. So if I'm going for something like that, I want to make sure that every single time a Howling Banshee squad leaves my deployment zone, it kills something in close combat and I score a point. The shooting point is usually a lot easier to get than the close combat point. Because the only close combat units I have are two banshees that are aspects, or two banshees and Baroth. So you're you're a little limited there on who's going to go go across the table and kill someone in close combat. Definitely, I can, I can totally see. I found myself struggling with Eldar when like the points factory that the Eldar army can kind of create doesn't lead to enough points because then you have to figure out how to kill people. And especially in a lot of Eldar lists that are more designed for shooting. People are hiding behind wall scoring objectives more passively than you is an enormous problem. Now, you have more combat elements than your typical other list because you have an avatar, you have a double banshee, um, mm-hmm. you have other avenues of attack with Baharoth and things like that. Do you find that challenging when you have to attack things behind walls to score points, or is that you've built in enough combat where that's non problem? I think there's enough combat that it's not really an issue. Um, the the kind of match where it's a little, little touch and go is like a Death Guard match where they're going to sit behind a wall with like a 400 point terminator unit that it's like well i'm probably not killing that unit um but fortunately what i found is the majority of armies that are that tough you can generally then opt and take your psychic secondary and if i have the option to take like if i if i have like a good mission setup where there's like an objective like especially like those quarters deployments where there's an objective in the quarter next to you that is usually behind a wall i can take things like hidden path scout the enemy and either warp ritual or interrogate and it's like well cool i'm probably going to score a you know, somewhere between a 38 and a 42 on secondaries. That's a strong position to be in. As you know, you mentioned the Necron army, that, that's the position they live in all the time. So getting to any mission where I can be in that secondary setup, I immediately in my head, I go, okay, well, I just have to not get tabled and I'll probably win. Right. Which is really, it's a really commanding place to be with your Eldar when you can get set that up. One of the challenging parts to Eldar also is just holding primaries, especially when the objectives find themselves in the open. The hold two domination styles can be very challenging because the objectives force more engagement. So you have the Avatar, which I know you mentioned he his one of his jobs is standing on an objective and not dying. I think that was your exact quote. Um, is, yep. that, is that plan A, B, and C for objectives, or is there more to it? Um, Avatar, Falcon, and characters. I mean, I have... I have six total characters. Five of them are wound protected, so they're under nine. The avatar being the only one who's not. So a lot of times what I'll do if I think I really need to hold an objective is it'll be, here's a falcon. It's got five dudes inside of it. And here's Baroth standing behind the falcon. And usually there's like something behind a wall that's behind Baroth within three inches. Then I usually try to have like some other unit kind of like up in midboards that way on the off chance that the falcon the five and the five guys all die and somebody still magically has enough ability to get through baros three wound per phase cap hopefully he's still not dying so that that's usually that play of like okay cool i need to hold this objective this turn um using the falcons just sacrificing them to hold an objective is a common strategy that i've employed or doing things like tossing a falcon over in like the far quarter where you know if the whole fight's happening on the left hand side of the battlefield and the right hand side is mostly empty sometimes i'll just go you know what i'm going to lose the fight on the left side but i'm going to throw a falcon over there on the right where there's nothing and my opponent probably can't get back over there so now suddenly that falcon those five dire avengers they might hold that objective for three turns and it's you know that utilizing that mobility in a moment of seeing an opportunity to put it in a place which again since i have it off the table for up to the first three turns 
I have a lot of chances to find a good spot to put it, especially if I'm not opting for the let's throw everything at you and try to kill everything, which is not my preferred strategy. And I don't employ that one very often. It goes to show like your flexibility and experience with the list where you know when to just abandon flank and go over there and when when to go all in on somebody, when to just hang back. If you're advising someone aspiring as an Eldar person, uh, how would you recommend they go about practicing this army? Uh, I mean, the first recommendation would be stick with it and keep playing the games because I firmly believe this list and lists styled like this are capable of winning any matchup. It doesn't mean that I will successfully pilot it there. Um, obviously, you know, I had a stumbling block in round nine and I wasn't able to to make it through. Oh but, no, nine rounds deep. Yeah, the, the, the list has all of the tools to win any game, my opinion. It, it's really, it's on you as the player. So the answer is just keep playing more games. Just keep practicing. Keep looking for opportunities in your post-game analysis. You know, try to take notes on what happened. Like not not just like your, you know, your recorded score of turn by turn, but actually like, you know, write down a little note of like, well, you know, I tried using Quicken on this turn and these are the fate dice I had available. And what did you do with them? You know, did you use a fate dice to cast Doom? Well, you could have just had Doom be the first power you cast from your Farseer. He would have gotten a plus one. You probably didn't need a fate dice for that. The same thing, Quicken's only a six to cast. Maybe you didn't, maybe you used a fate dice for it and you didn't need it. So really managing and utilizing those fate dice in the most optimal way possible is huge. Um, I, I can tell you, I have notes of countless mistakes I made with fate dice. I had a I had a freebie wound fate dice against uh, Jack in the last round where I could have just like killed his tomb spider. Just I literally could just done auto wound and probably just killed it with the avatar's thrown axe. But I just forgot I had it, didn't use it, and then was like, oh well, oops. <laughs> I actually uh, rough. So th- let's. Uh, I know you mentioned you know command points and how you mm-hmm. begin the game with two. That's not a lot of command points, although. <laughs> You know, I guess maybe in today's world, that's that's just enough. And you mentioned saving them for Phantasm. This is a segment on the show we call the uh, Brutal and Cunning, where we talk about, you know, command points that you just must have or things you save for or stuff you just kind of keep in your back pocket just in case. Let's just let's go in the example that you didn't use Phantasm. Mm-hmm. What are you then uh, keeping those command points for? Or what are you what are you trying to uh, slow your burn rate down to make sure that you have, you know, some some active things you can do later in the game? Pocket Elder Storm. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> that they, Nick, you know as well I do that. That took a serious blow <laughs> in that most recent it was cool, data slate update. It was, it was cool. really it was really cool for a while. Um, so the answer to that question is, and this actually goes into as I look back at the the last twelve games of forty k I played between the team event and the singles, I actually didn't phantasm once in twelve games. Um, I. Instead, opted to every single one of those games, I spent one command point and I put five rangers in the webway, which netted me across all of those games something like 50 extra points I earned on secondaries with Scout the Enemy by being able to deep strike a ranger squad. So my takeaway is probably, although I originally kept two in this list for Phantasm, I find I never use it. So I'm kind of leaning toward you really just need one to be able to webway someone and then having the other one available is actually still important because obviously you gain one point every player turn in the majority of missions. There's a couple where there's like weird requirements, but whatever. You you generally, by the time my turn comes around, I either have two or three points available to pay an first or second. And it's always about, for me, because I have an avatar, trying to think what turn the avatar might die and making sure I have two command points available so that way if he dies and he's in combat, he can fight on death. Um, and then simultaneously also trying to always keep one available in case Baharoth dies and you want to use the the Phoenix Lord Reborn strat to bring him back to life on a 4+. Both of those are like 
the most important stratagems to utilize. Are you ever fire and fading, battle focusing, plus one to casting? I will fire and fade. So that's obviously it's two command points now. You can only use it once per game. I will use it for things like if I want to restrain and I'm using something like Warp Ritual and I want to be able to restrain someone, which means I can't use Quicken to Quicken my Farseer back afterward. I have many times before had my Farseer shoot his little shrink and catapult and then I have spent the two command points to fire and fade him seven inches back. A lot of these deployments, there's a building that's about, I don't know, about 10 inches from the center. So when you're for, when you're at the edge of the six inches from the middle for Warp Ritual, if you can usually spend two and fire and fade that Farseer back behind the wall where your army probably is. So that is an option. I don't like doing it because it costs two command points, um, but there are, there are times where you have to. Points when you want to restore 80%. And, and Psychic Ritual, that is how you do it. That would be the way, especially since you know now we can't do the... Uh, they, they modified our... What was it? There was the battle focus stratagem that they modified, so now you just get to re-roll the D6 instead of getting an auto six. So <laughs> it's a little limiting. I want to take a side note and talk about the bookkeeping and tracking you do on your <laughs> games. I don't know if I've ever met a player who does it to the degree that you do. Like you mentioned casually in the notes portion of this before we actually went live <laughs> that you like keep notes on it like all of your games you've ever played and it's like including your nova ones i'm like where do you find the time or energy to do this this is so cool uh, i mean there's a lot of downtime when your opponent's taking their turn oh, especially God. if you're if you're a trusting individual and you're not concerned about anything you know uh, incorrect happening on your opponent's side and I, I had you know nine games against all across the gt against super quality folks who very honest players i didn't i never felt a need to even watch anything that was happening so it was really nice. What are you recording and how do you review it in post? Like, how does it actually tangibly help you? I'm, this is, as a coach, I'm asking, <laughs> this is pretty cool. So if you look, so I actually, there, there's a website, it's called like Squad Marks or something. They posted like free score sheets and I, I printed out like 20 of them. And so on there, I write down my secondaries, my opponent's secondaries, a little note section. I write down like any like major, like weird things about their army. But so that way I don't have to like go back and look in BCP. And then uh, I'll, in the margins on the side, I'll write down score projections of like what I think they're going to get, you know, oftentimes like do, where do I need to hold their primary to make sure that I'm up? Where do I need to hold their secondaries? Which secondaries are easy to block? Which ones are like impossible? You know, there, cause there's a lot of armies that have secondaries that you just can't really do anything about. They're just going to score them. So looking for notes like that, and I'll write down a little note or I'm like, okay, well this secondary I can probably block. And so you'll see in the margins of these pieces of paper, all these random numbers all over the place on the sides with like little question marks next to them and things crossed out as things happen. Um, guesses on like which turns I think I can block, like if they're taking grind them down, what I think I can do there. And then after the event, I take all of those pieces of paper and I enter them into uh, one of the, these apps where you can like record games. And I enter those, I enter all of the information about what happened in each round into the app. And then I'm able to look afterward. And actually I'm referencing it right now while we're talking about like, who were my opponents? What armies did they play? Did I have any weird notes about their games? And then it also of course, has like all the secondaries that we both took and what I actually scored. And I, this is, I think this I have the piece of paper a different here somewhere. world to mine. I, I like struggle to remember all games I play the day after I get back. Like, <laughs> Well, sometimes what I'll do is I'll actually take the notes and I'll recreate the scenario. Um, I, there's a table like five feet away from me in this room and I'll 
actually proxy out other people's armies and recreate the scenario of like roughly where their units were and try to figure out, okay, well, not only like mentally, what could I have done differently? But like, if I were to reapproach this game, knowing everything I know now with this perfect information about the secondaries, they're going to take the deployment we're going to have, if I'm going to go first or second, what other choices would I make? And how could I have solution to win that game? We talk about learning from your losses. We talk about learning from your wins. We talk about <laughs> like being self-analytical to get better and you know being objective about it. This is taking it to another level. I love it, Matt. No wonder you have... I've watched you as a player grow from like not very good at this game to <laughs> now second place in the Nova Open. So this is how you do it. This is really cool. I dig it. Let's talk briefly before we wrap up this part one of our two-part conversation about playing a buddy in a tournament, you know, when stakes are on the line. We actually, you can, people can go watch this game too. And we actually spoke to you on air on the Games Workshop Twitter, our Twitch feed uh, about, you know, preparing and getting ready for games and what you're expecting about facing next. And if you, if you faced Andrew Gagno, you know, how, you know, you would rely on your experience, but, but then it actually happened. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, playing a buddy and we don't have to really talk about that specific instance, but, you know, playing someone that you play in your, you know, casual life or or at local stores and then, playing them on you know a national stage you know honestly it's it's both easy and hard (laughs) it's easy in the sense of you know andrew and i play a lot we've actually played a lot at tournaments um one of the things that i know he and i struggle with is when we play at a tournament keeping the time in mind because sometimes we you know we'll play in like one of our basements and we'll play for like five hours and you know we'll we'll chit chat and we'll talk and the time will get away from us so one of the things that he and i both do a lot of times when we're playing at tournaments against each other, which again has happened many times, is we'll actually both very much limit chit chat. And it'll look really serious. It'll look like, you know, we're not really engaging with each other a whole lot because there's not a lot to talk about. Like I know he knows my army in and out. He I bounce army ideas off him all the time. We have a G chat thing where we we talk about our list constantly. You know, he he probably sent me 20 different variants of his towel list before Nova. Um, the, those riptides were like a last minute inclusion where he was, he just went crazy and decided I'm going to run three riptides. Um, and so I, we do a lot of chit chat outside of the game. So making sure that we don't do it when we're playing on the clock in the GT is important. Um, it, it means a lot of stuff is we hold each other actually probably a little bit more firmly to things. So if you watch, you know, the game with Brenton, for instance, Brenton and I were both very much intent, intent, intent. And there were a bunch of points where we both rolled a couple of things back because it was like, you were clearly not trying to do that. With Andrew, a lot of times we actually will be a little more strict with each other around like, well, you know, I know you wanted to move those crew towns onto that objective, but unfortunately you didn't. <laughs> so like you, you, steel sharpened steel. Yeah. Yeah. It's like how you abuse the people you love the most. <laughs> But it's okay, you know, we still drove home from the event together afterward, and we still, you know, got dinner, and everything is still cool, and I I would have been happy to lose to him, I was happy to beat him. Is there ever a an emotional struggle there, like if it was a really tense round, or maybe there was an argument within the game, or is it just kind of, you separate, like your friendship is above what happens on the table? Our friendship is definitely above it. Um I don't really think there's ever been an argument on the table that's been like really substantial. So it, that that probably helps. <laughs> um, I guess we haven't been tested that much on that. Generally, again, because we've played a lot of practice games against each other, I know his rules, he knows mine. So there's really not a lot of, there's no surprises. There's no gotcha moments anyway, because I mean, I've played against 
20 variants of his Tau army, and he's played against every variant of my Craftworld army since both of our codexes came out. So it, there's no there's no random tech that I've never seen before. There's no weird objective play. I mean, I, I knew exactly what his secondaries were going to be, and he knew what mine were. The second the matchup was announced, we, we both looked at it. It's like, oh yeah, I know exactly what Andrew's going to take. Well, it's funny you say that, because we actually interviewed Andrew last week, and he, he's been <laughs> kicking gotcha. himself for quite some time, pretty much since Nova ended, about how he misunderstood the tempo of the game, as he put it. And I, I found this so jaw on the floor, mouth open, I can't we're calling. It. We're calling it the 12-month troll. It's a 12-month troll. I mean, like, you guys play literally all the time. You said it, he said it, it's on the podcast, like, everybody knows it. This is no secret. And how does he not know that this is happening so, to him? The answer is if you actually look, and I gotta find the mission for it, but we uh in the last six months, every game that Andrew and I have played has been Recover the Relics, which is a hammer and anvil mission. So it's how does that long, happen? <laughs> it's so we play in our, our local league and we just kept getting paired in it. And then we played at both of the last GTs up at Tables and Towers, and we got paired in Recover the Relics. And the problem with that mission for me is I can't use Hidden Path. So I've actually never had an opportunity to use that secondary against Andrew. And I only started using Scout the Enemy probably, I don't know, a month and a half ago. And I actually, I did use it in our last league game, but I had never used Hidden Path. So he had never seen me just get an auto 15 on a secondary where it's like, oh, there's an objective in the quarter and you can't get over here. So I'm just going to score 15 points. Um, So I think that really messed with his math on when he was looking at it he just wasn't really it probably took him two turns to understand that oh oh you're just gonna get a 15 <laughs> this is amazing especially because the way in bad works it ramps up as the game goes on so it's like one point on turn one you don't even notice two points on turn two and you're like wait how does this work <laughs> and then, yep. it's and then i mean he could have done some stuff he could have blocked interrogate um I've, I've only taken interrogate twice against him he he recently has added a couple more characters um his early lists for tau only had like two and then he added long strike and then he had three but a lot of times he had like an ethereal like all the way in the back and a a commander who was all the way in the back, whereas now he's got these characters that are kind of like more mid-boardy, which means that suddenly interrogate is, well, I can just take that. And if I get a 15 on that, well, that's better than a 12 on Warp Ritual. And if you know, if I have two secondaries where I both got 15s, even if he holds Scout to a 10, which he did by never letting me in his deployment zone, he also kept a lot of units in his deployment zone to keep me from getting bonus Scout points, which I think really hurt him. He just, he stayed too far back for too long. All right, look. We can talk about this forever. I'm I'm very <laughs> eager to continue this conversation over in part two because it sounds like your army adapts how it plays to the mission, the opponent, the terrain, whether it's raining or, or warm outside, what day of the week it is, what time of the day it is. You got to plan for it all. So that's what we're going to unpack in part two. And then also, should Matt popularize this army as a new way style to play Eldar, you may want to learn how to play against it. And that's what we're going to find out. Right, Paul? Oh, we're going to look. This this is part one, the two part, like we talked about. Uh, really, if you, if you haven't subscribed, you want to because you're going to hear about some of the things we're talking about. The real nitty gritty, getting your uh, hands on some list and some matchups and some of the super tech there. If you are uh, you know not going to listen to part two or, or haven't subscribed yet, please consider leaving us a five star review. Consider subscribing, leave some comments, some thumbs up. Basically, any way that you can interact with us, that is a cool way that you can kind of hassle free interact with the show. That may alert some other folks they should be listening to us as well. Matt, thanks a lot for the time so far. Everybody else, hold tight. We'll see you in just a couple minutes. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.